The total amount of energy from outside the solar system ever received by all the radio telescopes on the planet Earth is less than the energy of a single snowflake striking the ground. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your host in Guildford, Matthew Russell. Oh, yeah, baby Sagan. There you go. That was Carl Sagan, uh, who unfortunately died on this day back in 1996. Um bit of a sad one. Uh, this is a bit of an odd podcast. I don't have a co-host this week, so I'm just going to leave you with a very long interview I did with a chap called Paul Knight from Goon Hilly. Uh, Goon Hilly being an enormous um, radio communication site uh, based near Helston in Cornwall. Uh, it's a really interesting little chat that I did back in 2018. So I'm going to let Paul explain all about Goon Hilly. And I shall uh, see you all after Christmas. So have yourself a lovely Christmas and a kootai. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. So I'm in the lounge with Paul Knight from Goonhilly, uh, just to have a little chat about some of the history of, of Goonhilly and how it came to be. Yeah. So, yeah, where were we? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were just sort of talking about Intelsat and uh, the types of uh, satellites that the uh, we used to work to uh, when it was a, a, a telecommunications station. Um, and really, Intelsat was the first international satellite organization, and uh, countries had a representative. It was sort of like a United Nations, but for satellites. And countries had representatives who, and they meet three or four times a year for what we all thought is jollies, but obviously they did a lot of business. <laughs> uh, but then again, you never know. Uh, and uh, in the early days, um, the post office, or BT as it now is, was the uh, UK representative on the board of Intelsat. So senior management in the uh, in in London of of the post office were actually members of the organisation. So in the early days, all the satellites we worked to were uh, Intelsat satellites, uh, Utelsat, and those sort of uh, uh, organisations didn't exist when we first started. What's what sort of year was this? We well, I I arrived as a um, fresh faced. Just finished my training from the telephone area at Gunnelly in 1966, October 66. It's quite a quite a memorable year for those who like football. It was the World Cup, <laughs> yeah. uh, our, our one claim to fame in the World Cup. Um, for me, the abiding memory I have of that year was the Abervan uh, disaster in South Wales when all the kids were killed in that school when the the mine slag uh, tipped. Uh, ran down the hill on, onto the school. Uh, and I remember it mainly because at the time, it was my last major job in the telephone area before I transferred into uh, what eventually became BT International. Uh, and I was involved in circuit provisioning for all the press, the broadcast companies, to get circuits from the newspapers out to Abervan 
so that they could run their stories. So um, it sort of has a, a, a always stick, will always stick in my mind. And then I came to Goonhilly, as I say, as um, a technician, lowly technician, uh, wondering what I was getting myself into, but very interested because I'd seen all the um, television programs with Raymond Baxter and uh, all those people at Goonhilly mm. for the first transmissions. And uh, I decided then that's where I wanted to end, that's where I wanted my career to, to go, progress towards. Um, but at the time I was in the telephone area, I had to take tests and stuff like that, exams to move into international. And my boss at the time in Bristol said to me, I think you're a fool. I think it's foolish for you to uh, go to uh, such a, an out of the way place with technology that nobody knows is going to exist and you get them and back yourself into a corner and not have any prospects where you could stay here and you could become a TO and stuff, which was a technical officer. Mm -hmm. Those people who hear this, who were XPT will know exactly what I'm talking about. Anyway, I decided to not to, to, to ignore him completely <laughs> and came to Guinea and that was the best move I ever made. Yeah, I yeah. mean, there must've been, I mean, if we're talking about the late sixties, there must've been quite a buzz at the time about space in general, because we've got the moon landings and we've got... Yeah, and there was Sputnik and all that years gone yeah. by, you know. Uh, so in the, in the late 50s, 59. So yeah, it was, uh, to me, it seemed the, if you wanted to get on in a new field of uh, telecommunications, it was a place to go, you yeah. know. And, um, and it, I mean, I remember the guy saying, "What do you want to get? Where, where's your? Where's your? Do you want your career to be?" I said, "Well, eventually, I want to be your. I want to have your job." I said, "Or a job like yours, not necessarily your job, but a job like yours. I want to be your rank," which in those days was an executive engineer. And um, anybody who worked in the telephone regions and areas, you that you, you know, if you saw your executive engineer once a year, that was the you remember that for the rest of your life, you know. <laughs> so. <laughs> So that's where I wanted to go, and uh, he. Uh, so, as they say, water under the bridge. I, I actually, that's where I when I left. That's what I left as, um, or the equivalent version of it in the modern parlance. Uh, so I came there as uh, in 1966, October 1966. Uh, it was still uh, just finishing being um, an experimental uh, facility. There was still only the one antenna, Gunnily One, uh, which is a job I've got has come around full circle to haunt me that thing. But um, <laughs> the uh, and we were it was we were not twenty four hours in those days. It was the services operated on a daily basis, shared between uh, the UK, a station in France, and a station in Germany, to one station in the USA and over Maine in the USA. Uh, both the German and the French station and the uh, American station Andover had large horn antennas. And Gunhilly was the only dish type antenna. Mm. Um, was that an advantage or a disadvantage? It was an advantage in some respects because uh, it, uh, it it well, it turned out to be the only the the, the best sort of antenna. It was relatively, I say, cheap to manufacture. It the horn antennas were large, huge structures, mm. 
and they had a huge, you needed a huge piece of land to put them on. Not that that was a problem at Gunnilly, although to get it flat to run the track uh, was quite a technical, um, difficult, uh, difficult problem in those early days. Um, I, I mean, get it, get it to, to, when I say flat, get it to the tolerances that you needed to run a satellite antenna around mm. on a railway track. Um, uh, so yeah, Gunnilly was cheaper to make. Um, it's just lump of steel really with a, with a, a, a shiny, a, a radio shiny surface. Yeah. Big one, 85 feet in diameter. So it was, um, quite a feat of engineering done by a husband and co the same guy who, uh, built the Jodrell bank facilities. In fact, um, Goonhilly won. People say, "Oh, that's a copy of the Jodrell Bank." It's it is and it isn't. It was actually uh, they they were going to start to build the Jodrell Bank station, and the government stopped that project and said, "Go and build Goonhilly One." So Goonhilly One is actually the first antenna based on that design. Um, uh, are they a similar sort of size, actually? Uh, they they are, although the uh, the the, the Jodrell Bank antenna is is a little smaller. Um, it's also a different shape now because they put what if you like large ears on it, and it's more of an oval shape now than it was. Uh, recently went well. Recently, within the last ten years, I suppose, went through a major major refit. Mm. Is uh, in pristine condition. Looks a, a lovely piece of kit. Mm. In fact, I'm going up there next Monday. Uh, to, for for more conferences on what we're going to do to get any one. Yeah, well, I mean, they have festivals around. Jodrell. Yeah, yeah, Jodrell Bank's a fabulous place. Yeah, 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 well worth a visit. If you're ever up that way, well worth a visit. They have a superb uh, tourist facility, visitors facility there. Uh, and to see the, the big, what you might call wire um, telescope, the huge one, hmm. Which is again a parabolic reflector, but you can see all through it because it's all um, uh, sort of an open type construction, kind of because of the frequencies it um, it receives. It's amazing to see mm. that structure, absolutely. And when it moves, it's 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 like it's like watching a ballet dancer. It's absolutely fantastic if you're that way, inclined. <laughs> if, if you're technically inclined, shall we say? Yeah, well, I I, mm. I definitely do need to get up to yeah, the yeah, yeah, do. Yeah. I mean, you don't see it move all the time, although they do do quite a lot of experiments with it. It all belongs to, or it's all part of Manchester University. Yeah. So anyway, I arrived at Gunnilly as a, as a technician, and um, uh, in those days, every morning. Uh, from, well, we shared it, as I say, with the three with the other two stations in Europe, and you did uh, your station did one week's traffic, one followed by a week's maintenance, followed by a week's standby, and then your week uh, traffic, and it needed those sorts of timescales to um, uh, tweak all your. Once you finished your 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 week's operational services, you had to strip it all down, rebuild the all the electronics. Uh, the low noise amplifiers, which were a thing called amazers, which were liquid helium cooled devices. No way. You know, they had to be refurbished with uh, liquid helium and stuff like that. The helium had to come down from London, came down on the train. We had to go over and collect it from Red Roof Station, yeah. bring it back in a Land Rover. 
helium's not cheap either, is it? No, uh, well, they collected the helium and they had these big balloons. I mean, huge, huge, great balloons in uh, one of the equipment rooms over there. And as the helium boiled off, it was collected. And then the gas, the gas was recompressed and sent back for for recompression into liquid helium again. Oh wow! So yeah. so they sent it off uncompressed. Yeah, yeah, oh, well, that must yeah, have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that must have looked in a big, incredible. Big, big, uh, a big vat sort of stuff. Yeah, well, not a vat, a big container. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, there was so there was two there were two dewers. There was a liquid helium dewer, which was the inner dewer, and around that there was a, a liquid nitrogen dewer, and the amplifier thing. The device was right in the middle of the um, uh, of the liquid helium that operated at around about uh, fifteen degrees, fifteen to twenty five degrees Kelvin. So it was, uh, and that's yeah. presumably to get around the noise. Yeah, to get the yeah low noise. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's getting down towards superconducting and stuff like that. Yeah, you know? I mean, what were you there when that? whole system got ripped out and replaced by something more modern which was able to well, work at low noise or? Uh, yeah yeah in some way yeah i was there then yeah uh, i wouldn't i wasn't uh, i was there on um community uh two had been built by then and i was on uh maintenance uh, of community two so i didn't really didn't really get involved in what went on for those um uh refits uh, but there were several uh, several refits. I mean, now you can get these Peltier Gould uh, amplifiers and stuff like that. They operate it down at twenty degrees Kelvin, and uh, you know, there's like yeah. th there doesn't look anything special about them at all. Right? They're just expensive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, th that's what we used to do. So, so the first, when it was your day. Uh, uh, it was your start on the on the Monday of service. Then you would uh, eight o'clock. You would start and you'd contact the uh, the station in the uh, USA, and you do what they call straightaways, which was you would test between the two stations uh, your your character noise ratios and your signal strengths, and send uh, what they called a white noise test set over, and you measure the noise in the, all the frequency bands associated with telephone conversations because it was always it was all telephone it was yeah. all telephony um there was the facility to do tv but if you did tv then telephony had to stop you couldn't do both there right. wasn't the uh, capacity in the satellite right and how many how many satellites were up then? just that the one of, just the one just the one and that was yeah. telstar was it? uh telstar initially for the first experiments and then hs303 which was the first commercial satellite that had a bit more bandwidth right like it had room for 250 telephone circuits or one television channel right and so you went you did your straightaways on the first morning and you in fact then you 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 carried traffic then telephone traffic then until uh midnight and then at midnight you turned a key and it looped all the circuits back to london so they could monitor the circuits but there was no traffic and then eight o'clock the next morning you went through the whole process again you did that for seven days and after those seven days, you handed off to the next station, which in our case was always the French station. Mm. They did the same for their seven days, and they handed off to the uh, German station. Uh, and then, in the meantime, we were then standby. And if uh, for some reason when they handed off it didn't go, then it would come back, back to, to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but the people using this telephone service, presumably, this this isn't your punter. 
new? Um, or, or yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, I mean, STD obviously was in, came in in the fifties, uh, and then uh, you could dial the international code then. I think it was probably mainly limited to around uh, around London. It was still fairly expensive, so it'd be more business orientated than um, than personal. Mm. But yeah, you could dial. Uh, they were mainly operator controlled. Mm. I think in the very early days, so you rang the operator to get your international call. Uh, but yeah, it was it was but it was only Europe to the USA, right? Nowhere else. Although it might have gone on, I suppose. Um, no, it probably all terminated in the USA. Yeah, I, I can't be sure of that. Not so I mean, there must have been because the cables come up quite nearby, don't they? When when it was when it was undersea cables for the telephone. Yeah, I mean, well, they all ter they all terminated in London, of course. Uh, but the in those days, it would have been, I think, Tat One, uh, Tat One, and Cantat One. Uh, Cantat One went across um, from Scotland, I think, across to uh, Canada. Tat One, I don't, I'm not sure where Tat One terminated in the UK, where, where it came mm. ashore. I, it was probably uh, Widdemouth Bay or somewhere like that. I'm not sure about that. I can't remember. But that was that was all yeah. there was, yeah. other than HF Radio, right? Which was like rugby and those sort of stations. Yeah. Where if if the uh, atmospherics were uh, not not too good, you just the, the voice would go all funny and stuff like that. But then. In January, uh, the end of January, um, 97, no, 67, we went commercial. And that's a date I remember because we got married at the end of January and I was way on honeymoon and I came back to Goonhilly and uh, the first thing they did was put me on night shift. Oh. And that was the first time we then went 24-hour shift. And then we were, it was commercial then um, uh, for 24 hours oh. and we had a full shift rotor. And gradually, the number of circuits increased as the bandwidth uh, became available, different satellites, right. uh, until it was the full commercial system we knew. And in fact, when that happened, the price of um, an international telephone call to the USA, mainly to start with, tumbled. It came right down from several pounds to like 50p, right. 10 shillings, you know. Yeah. Ten old shillings. So yeah. it actually started to become more of a kind of oh yeah, yeah relatives yeah. Yeah, each yeah. other rather than businessmen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although there was still, I mean, we had what they called the busy periods, and when the when the time zones coincided, the daytime parts mm. of the time zone coincided, the traffic used to really Ramp zoom up, up. Yeah, and then it would tail off into the um, evenings and and, uh, and early mornings. Right. So for for that for that entire period, presumably no science was being done at Goon Hilly. Uh, no, no, no. Science was always being done. There was there was there were two groups of people. There was the uh, operational people who worked for. Um, well, we all worked for the post office, but there was the the. Um, the uh, uh, an organization called ETE, which is stand for External Telecommunications Executive, and they were the part of the uh, post office uh, that used to have been, uh, if you like, the foreign parts in uh, when they were all nationalized in 1947. Right. But the, the, so they were part of the post office, but they looked after all the external telecommunications from mm. the UK. 
Um, and then there was the radio department, which was associated with the then research department at Dollis Hill, which later moved out to Marlsham Heath. Right. Um, and they were they became uh, what, what was known as TD Technology D Development Group. And so that uh, the, so there was always there's always has been or always was a branch of the of uh, the post office and then BT, which was uh, associated with experimentation and uh, progress. Mm. Um, and it was uh, eventually it became my um, part of my role. It was to head up a team of uh, people to do with radio propagation and uh, well, uh, uh, electromagnetic compatibility and all those sort of things mm. that came along later. And we did very early development on solid state um, high power transmitters uh, with um, contracts with universities for the, the basic science and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, and again, in fiber optics, we did a lot of uh, original groundwork in uh, trying to um, use fiber optics to transmit microwaves uh, rather than rather than just light waves. Right, so, so we converted the radio waves into light waves to travel over fiber optics rather than on coaxial cables. And now that's common throughout the industry. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It was something that Eddie pointed out that, yeah. that it went straight into, yeah, into yeah. fiber optics. Yeah, it's, so. it's, uh, it was all about trying... The, the, the thing that drives development, apart from uh, wartime development, is... Cutting costs, yeah. increasing your revenue at the at the uh, uh, rate that is by by cutting your operating costs. Yeah. What what big changes did you see? While because you, you you've been at Goonhilly a long time, <laughs> so what what what, yeah, <laughs> what, too what, long. what big changes did you see over the? What were the kind of main? Well, the the, the biggest change of all was the change of from analog analog transmission to digital transmission. I mean, when I started there, it was all analog transmission, and we used frequency modulation to um, transmit the signals uh, via the satellites. And you, you, you know, you you started with a baseband signal, which was uh, what were known as groups and supergroups, and they were like blocks, blocks, basically blocks of twelve channels, mm -hmm. um, and uh, twelve voice channels. And a voice channel is uh, roughly four kilohertz wide. Mm. Uh, so there are blocks of channels. Uh, and and they were then, as I say, groups were the basic block. Then it went into supergroups, which was five groups, and then it went into uh, hypergroups, which was five supergroups. I think it's a long time yeah. ago that, and that was all frequency modulated onto. Um, it was up converted, uh, went into a come from baseband, went into a modulator where it was frequency modulated up to seventy megahertz. Then it was um, up converted into uh, six gigahertz, and then it went through to the transmitter. Transmitters were always located on the antennas. And on a site like Gunhilly, you had a main building where all the, uh, what we termed the IF and the baseband equipment was. And you had the antennas where all the low noise amplifiers and all the high powered amplifiers were hmm. operated. So we had this, these big coaxial um, cables from one across site. And eventually, um, that transformed into not coaxial cables, but into waveguides mm. across site, elliptical waveguides. And now it's tra been transformed again into fiber optics. Right. And uh, um, I mean, if you, I'm kind of here, but uh, 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 an elliptical waveguide 
would have a diameter of about I don't know, say, say in the in the narrow plane about two inches. Uh, in that same sort of space, you can get thousands and thousands <laughs> yeah. of fiber optics, yeah, yeah. each one capable of taking thousands and thousands of channels. Yeah. Um, and the the transmission loss. I mean, we're talking about uh, six hundred meters maximum distance. So the transmission loss for a coaxial cable and a waveguide was quite significant. Whereas a fiber optic, the transmission loss is over that sh such a short distance is virtually negligible. Yeah. So it it means that you can cut down on your operating costs. You, know, you don't need so many amplifiers. Amplifiers consume power. Or everything everything changes. Yeah. Changes in a big way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. When you switched over to digital, well, I mean, talking in the audio industry, we, 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 we literally started to switch over to digital radio for, for, for handheld microphones and things like that. Uh, only now, because of, because of latency problems. Yes, are there, yes. Are there the similar sort of latency problems? Yeah, there, yeah, there are. I mean, you, if you deal with, with computers and, and transmission things, you get the thing called a ping time. Yeah. And uh, the ping time is a significant uh, uh, problem. I mean, it, it prevents some types of, uh, of um, what you might call common uh, transmission of emails and stuff. It, 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 you have to change the way you code it mm. to, to get over things like long ping times. Um, uh, and uh, if you have like two routes, a, a main route and a diverse route, if the ping times are not the same on both routes, when there's a changeover and it flops to the other route, you know, there's some sort of could be that because the ping times yeah. aren't the same. There's that that brief moment where everything goes off. Yeah, you know, and you have to resynchronize. And yeah. and and if those sort of things happen and you have to resynchronize, then what what is a uh, uh, to most people would be a short break of less than say a, a few milliseconds. If you in, then introduce the resynchronization, resynchronization for a very complex long route, it could take uh, it could take minutes, you know, just for that one short break. Hmm. So you don't want those things to happen. You, <laughs> yeah, you, no, you have to definitely. be very careful. You have to, be, you know, because we're talking when we got multiple digital circuits over one route. You're talking availability times of uh, 99.99999, You yeah. know, like less than a less than fifteen minutes a year outage time. You know, so you can't yeah. lose all that sort of fifteen minutes in one in one hit. Of, yeah, no, yeah, one hit. No. Yeah. So with your with with over over the decades, obviously we've 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 got well, two and a half thousand satellites now up in up, up, Is there? Uh, yeah. <laughs> something like that up in, up in yeah. I mean, obviously a lot of them are military, but the but we've got a lot up in and I'm assuming a lot of what Goon Hilly's been doing is earth orbit satellites so have there have you ever during the history up until now have you uh, done any deep space communications with satellites no not not as far as I'm aware I wouldn't say I'm aware of everything I mean you never know in this industry uh, I mean um for years and years ago I mean uh we pointed at a satellite there's no, I mean, that the, 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 the beam doesn't go to the satellite and stop. Yeah. It continues on. Uh, so who knows what could, what other stuff, other people could modulate on top of that. Right. And in fact, 
um, going back into the late 80s, late, uh, no, probably late 70s, early 80s, there were, um, people were experimenting with um, forms of very, very low speed data. That, and they piggybacked that data onto uh, commercial satellite systems. Um, and the commercial satellite owners and, and uh, knew nothing of it because all it did, all it effectively did was just slightly increase the noise floor. Yeah. Um, and uh, some of that traffic was um, from organizations which, you know, we, we don't talk about, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, and it, was, uh, it only became... Um, noticeable if something went wrong with their experiments and they and they transmitted too much power and then you suddenly see all this great lump of noise come up and you think you anyway so yeah. uh wow. but yeah that sort of thing uh, has always been it's always 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 been possible yeah um but we never hey we never got involved in any um i'm not sure i'm not sure there were any experiments that went into deep space right no I mean, until they started launching um, deep space probes, the only people who looked into deep space were the astronomers, really. Yeah. You know, uh, but it was still until NASA and those sort of people came along and, and launched probes that were going to travel uh, through the universe and out beyond our uh, solar system that you really wanted to talk to or you wanted to. Yeah. I mean, I presume there were people out there listening. Yeah, you know, listening for uh, the message, but I would have thought they were astronomers more than yeah. commercial. Because I mean, obviously, things like Jodrell Bank—they're using it for for a deep astronomy. Yes, 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 but, yes. But Goonhilly was presumably much more interested in commercial usage of satellites. That's the, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, we had uh, that's why the 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 uh, Places like Jodrell Bank and stuff like that don't really have a transmit capability. They're listening. Yeah. I mean, they could add, add transmit capabilities. It's not difficult to do, but but they weren't a commercial-based organization yeah. in that respect. Yeah. Um, whereas Goonhilly was always built as a, a commercial communications hub. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, I mean, as far as I know, there's no money in uh, in talking. To <laughs> there's nobody out there. You're talking to yourself, really. Oh, yeah. That, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not suggesting that you were part of the SETI <laughs> setup or the or the other one. What's the other one where you try and communicate with them? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Meti, is it? Is it? But, uh, yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, but, the, uh, but because obviously recently you uh, Goonhilly announced that they were going to be part of the deep space network of... Uh, yeah, uh, and, uh, and you've you've talked to people already about that, and uh, you know, in other podcasts. But um, uh, I mean, the, the, the nowadays in commercial satellite operations, um, commercial satellite operations are good for what they call point to multipoint. Fiber optics and cable is good for point to point. So, and you don't need. These days, with, with very large satellites, very big capacities, you don't need huge great Earth stations. Um, and 
stations like Gunhilly 1, Gunhilly 2 has uh, already gone, Gunhilly 3 and Gunhilly 6 are historic mm. pieces of kit. We don't need them that size at all. Uh, and they're expensive to run. Mm -hmm. You have to, uh, if you, I mean, as I say, it's all about uh, getting value for money out of the equipment you've got. And it's, they're really not value for money to run mm -hmm. for, for that sort of commercial telecommunications anymore. You can get as many circuits uh, over uh, a dish, a quarter size, you know, 16-meter yeah. diameter. You know, there's a few of those, 9-meter diameter. There's a lot more of those around now. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, that's mainly what has been constructed over the last three years at Gunnilly, a small yeah. uh, antennas like that. I mean, you can have them on the back of a van, can't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, you can, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, if you look at the uh, the, the Avanti uh, development at Gunnilly, that is all small dishes, higher frequencies, KA band, but it's um, small dishes. Mm. So, you know, the, the market's gone on. Yeah. The business has gone on. But you've got Gunnilly 1 which was the first antenna of that design, which all antennas around the world too are built to now. Uh, you can't knock it down, yeah. really. I mean, it's got it's the history of the place, and it's, in fact, a listed, listed structure now, so yeah. you can't knock it down. But if you're going to keep a, a still structure, hmm. which is basically what it is, still in concrete structure, you either uh, cover it in something to protect it, or it'll fall down at any rate. Yeah. Uh, especially in the environments we got around here with the salty air. Uh, and if you're going to keep it uh, uh, in a reasonable condition so it stands up to the wind speed, you've got to paint it. Yeah. You've got, you just got to do basic maintenance on it. And basic maintenance on a thing that big costs a lot of money. Yeah. So you need to um, uh, find something that those structures can do to 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 um keep revenue coming in to keep them yeah in the in the way that people want them to be kept uh commercially they don't make sense yeah you know commercially it doesn't make sense at all to keep those structures the best thing you could do is knock them down but we got to keep them so uh Guinea one is um gonna be part of um uh gonna be changed into a into a radio telescope it won't have any transmit facilities um the corrosion pr problems with that antenna have reached a situation where the surface accuracy of the main dish is not as good as it should be for telecommunications operations but it's okay for uh lower frequency uh l-band type uh optical well not optical but ast astronomy type yeah. functions yeah, yeah. and that's what it's going to be repurposed to um Gunilly three fine antenna uh, not many of them like uh, i mean built by marconi company uh the probably that one Gunilly three is probably the last one of that size they built um and of course marconi company no longer exists um, so that antenna is going to be repurposed again into, into, uh, a sort of deep space telescope, but it's going to be a telescope as well as a, as well as a, um, a transceiver as well. Right. 
and uh, there's a new feed being developed by uh, transmission feed to take the signals that are generated below and, and inject them into space. Uh, going to be uh, is being developed now by Oxford University, and it'll be a rotating feed that uh, with a with a, um, a belt, and you you flip around to different feed systems so you can operate at different frequencies. Mm -hmm. um, I I don't know where that development of that feed is, but I understand it's uh, nearing completion, and it might even be delivered later this year. I'm not sure about that. So that antenna is going to have to have a major uh, refurbishment, uh, but not significantly, not much significantly in, uh, cost-wise, because that antenna is in very good condition. Hmm. Won't need new drive systems. It won't need major, just a, a major, uh, just a little paint around for yeah. a few rusty bits. Nothing significant at all. Might change the motors, because none of these antennas need to move uh, as fast as they used to. So you can, you can get by with smaller yeah. drive systems. Uh, Angular Six is, as you already know, is being going to be repurposed for a deep space um, yeah. communication system, and uh, part of that refurbishment is to add extra communication bands uh, over over and above this the C and KU yeah. capability that it's got. Yeah, I mean, one of, <laughs> I absolutely love that wall of relay based logic. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just looks so impressive. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, when I, was, I mean, if we go back again, click the clock back. When I first went to Goonhilly, the uh, transistors in the in the in the, in the late fifties, early sixties, transistors were just, if you like, becoming uh, something that we all knew about, and uh, the uh, room to control that antenna was in the main building, and it was. Uh, well, it's 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 if you've been to the site, you 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 have the the, the mm. tower as mm. they call it, like the aircraft control tower. And there was a room at the bottom of that control tower, much bigger than the control tower base, where there were probably twenty twenty racks, and I'm talking about nine foot high uh, racks of equipment uh, with transistor boards after transistor boards after trans because everything was done with discrete components yeah there were no integrated circuits yeah as we know today and that took the uh information from the encoders which was in uh gray code i forget how many bits now 32 bits whatever it was gray code and converted them into angles so to display it took the commands from the from the console upstairs to drive the antenna and they all went across site to the antenna site, a quarter of a mile away, over um, DC cables. But mainly we put relays on the ends of those so that if there was, um, so you drive across, say, at 28 or 30 volts, or 50 volts even, across the site, so that there were still some volts left when yeah. you got to the other end. And then there would be a relay then to, to, to uh, take that information and drive it into the uh, drive systems. But you needed relays because they were discrete connect disconnection points. So that if there was a lightning strike there, 
They wouldn't blow the it whole lot. It wouldn't, wouldn't blow the whole lot. And that was that was the way we, we, we um, had uh, our lightning protection. Yeah. Uh, eventually, of course, with uh, photo-emitting dyes and stuff like that, you could do Come away on, with yeah. the work. Yeah. But that was, a, that's, that was what gave us a, a certain amount of protection. Um, the problem that, that, that really came was when you have a lightning strike of many thousands and thousands of volts hitting an antenna, it actually doesn't do any damage to the antenna. It just raises the earth potential of the whole of that area, which of course is connected by DC cables with 240 <laughs> volts and stuff. So suddenly all your earth over there is at, at hundreds of volts and over here is at zero volts. And you get great rushes of current down the, uh, the oh, earth. Wow. earth yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that, must be a that must be a major problem. It was, it was in the past because you could always, you always got these earth loops and, and um, it would uh, pop transistors and stuff for a, for a pastime. Always a terrible time when we we're going to get, when there was thunder and lightning, nobody really wanted to be um, uh, involved because uh, you always knew the next morning, oh, but yeah, we're going to be so busy, you know, trying to repair all these boards because everything had to be repaired. Yeah. Um, and that's why you, I suppose, you had those weeks off as well. To, to yeah, 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 all that sort of thing. Yeah, because so you know, uh, the the life of a a transistor was given in hours, not not many thousands of hours as they are yeah. now. Yeah, you know, I mean, we put stuff in now that has got a mean time between failures of uh, hundred and fifty five thousand hours. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Well, and again, that's the commercial push, isn't it? You, yeah, the, yeah. It's commercially. Makes it's all sense. about reliability. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I well remember um, when we first had some the submarine cable started to land at Gunhilly. They were, they went to Spain, uh, and I was on shift with a friend of mine. Who was because we we all had little, our little departments. I was in the control room and the the west wing, which was uh, uh, where all the uh, satellite stuff come in. A friend of mine, uh, Mike, uh, he was in the uh, repeater station where the, the, the all the stuff used to come in and go out to London. And when you have a submarine cable station, there, I mean, there's DC. You send DC mm -hmm. down the submarine cable, but you have to have an, what they call an artificial line, which is the balance between the that the, yeah. the cable and uh, and and the ground and the and the, the the actual power feeding equipment goes in the middle, so it looks from an electrical point of view is in the middle of the the circuit. And we had a terrific, terrific thunderstorm, and the lightning struck the area of the ground, which was the. Um, artificial line and that was capacitors and stuff like that buried in the ground or, or it yeah. made to look like that and it struck this uh i just opened the door because it was 11 o'clock and we were due to go off shift 11 o'clock at night and i just opened the door to walk in and this lightning strike i saw it go down through the wind past the window and hit the ground and the rack my friend was at the other side and the rack between the two of us just exploded it exploded. Oh the doors came off, <laughs> there, and there was this great. Uh, and it, uh, for a second, you couldn't hear anything, and then you all hell broke loose. Oh, was all these red lights just <laughs> lit up the place on every rack, every alarm in the place came up. Uh, one or two uh, four-letter words were exchanged between the two of us. 
Um, and I turned around and went and looked at my kit. And uh, three and a half hours later, we managed to, to, to get some semblance of services uh, back working. But my God, that was some frightening experience. <laughs> it really was. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because it's quite an exposed part of the land, isn't it? Yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, uh, as I say, it doesn't do any damage to the structures. The, the only, on the structures, what you have to watch is um, where you have a bearing point, like, uh, you know, the elevation bearings. You have to have a strap that connects uh, the, uh, around the bearing, mm. a big, big earth strap, a flexible copper cable. And you put that on all your bearing points so that if the light, when the lightning transfers, transfers down through the you have a lightning uh, rod yeah. on the top but when the lightning goes down through the structure the steel structure if it comes to something that's uh, like covered in grease could insulate yeah. it and you could burn the bearings so yeah. so the that takes it around the bearings and it just goes down into a big mat underneath the um yeah i mean when i say because they're uh, you, you you when you go to the uh to the antenna and you look at the the concrete base that it's on well underneath that concrete base and out beyond the concrete base is a huge earth mat of um copper copper wires right yeah uh, spread about uh i mean they're not something you can dig up and steal that's for sure <laughs> they're pretty deep yeah you know um but there, there's big copper mats underneath uh, all yeah. of those antennas Almost, I've definitely overshot here. So, uh, <laughs> have you got? But before I let before I let you get on with your with your life, is have you got any any like really incredible story that you is one of, is one of your favourite stories? You're allowed to tell me, obviously. That's uh, uh, about, uh, well, about Goon Hilly. Well, uh, no, What's not fa not favourite recollection. Or? Well, actually, I mean, all I can say is about Goon Hilly was I I went there as a as a, as I say a lonely technician. I was able to use the facilities provided by um, BT as it became. Uh, I was on shift and, and uh, I hated shift work. And we had some fun on shift work, some of probably best not to talk about. But I did, I um, was able to use the time when I was on shift to uh, study. And I did my degree uh, with the Open University. I was a B year student, so the year after it all started, and I did my degree courtesy of BT mm. when I was working shift. So that was a, a great help. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, and uh, it gave me the life I got today without working for, without transferring. Yeah. And then in the 90s, 92 to be precise, when BT was uh, starting to downsize, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, competition had been eating away at its, uh, its superb profits. I was given the opportunity to um, take early retirement at the age of 48, a voluntary redundancy stroke early retirement. And I did when I left. And I was, came home in the, that June, July. Said to Kate, on the, this is the first day of the rest of our life. And on that Monday morning, when I was should have got up, go to work, I didn't. I was laying in bed, and the phone went at uh, about nine fifteen in the morning. And there was this guy on the phone from an organisation called BT Tel Consult, an offshoot of BT. And he rang me up and he said, uh, "Are you just left Guinea?" I said, "Yes." 
he said, how would you fancy coming back as a consultant? So <laughs> I said, well, I don't know. What's the first job? What do you want me to do? He said, well, I want you to come up to Slough and we'll have a talk about it. He said, but we, we're looking for somebody to go to Angola. Are you interested? I never even knew where Angola was. <laughs> so, so, yeah, and, the, and then that started another chapter in my life, which yep. went on until pretty much I retired. And now I've gone back again. <laughs> but back to the old job of looking at Gunnity One mainly. Wow. So uh, full circle for me. Yep, absolutely. Well, 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 well yeah, so Goon Hill has been a, a major part of Oh, it's been, yeah. it's been all my life, yeah, 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 yeah really, yeah. It's, uh, as I say, it's given me... And you're a local Cornish? No, no, oh, no, 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 oh, no, got, no, 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 no. You've got the Cornish accent. Though. Yeah, well, I've been, uh, I'm a Somerset boy, <laughs> uh, born, uh, well, I was born in Bristol, uh, but we uh, lived in North Somerset, a uh, um, place called Pill, where the uh, motorway goes over the River Avon. Right. In fact, oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah, when I first heard about Goonhilly, I was a trainee at Bin Bristol, and I used to go across Shirehampton. They had the, which is the other side of the river from where I lived. They had the regional training school, which looked after the whole of Devon and Cornwall, southwest of England, southwest region. And I was on a training course over at Shirehampton. I used to catch the ferry across the river to go to the training course. And there was a program uh, with Raymond Baxter when they first showed the first thing, and it was on about midnight. And I stayed up to watch it, and that's when I made my decision. And I was late the next morning going to work, so I overslept, missed the ferry. <laughs> <laughs> so there, that's the... And that's, yeah. that's what started it all for me, yeah. That's a good job you didn't miss that program as well. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks very much for giving us all that. That's brilliant.